Um, coming back off vacation, and I am usually just so excited to preach after vacation and share the things that the Lord's put in my heart. And, and I want to level with you, and I want to share just something from my heart that this will tie into the passage, but um, a guy that's a mentor of mine at a church up in North Jersey, they've been able to grow one of the largest churches in Jersey that just keeps planting churches and planting churches. And one of the biggest pieces of advice he gave me when he started coaching me was just always be radically honest with your people. So we asked him, how do you continue to grow? How'd you go from being 40 people to having multiple campuses and being 6,000 people? And he said, whenever I mess up, I stand up and I tell people. And um, when I need to repent, I repent. And when I don't know what I'm doing, I stand up and tell people I don't know. And uh, boy, that was good counsel. So I was faced with a dilemma this week that I wanted to share with you for two minutes before I get into the passage. And like I said, it will tie in. I was not excited about coming back to preach for a couple reasons. And I was nervous to share about those couple of reasons, wondering, even right now, wondering what's going through your minds. What are you thinking about me as I'm sharing these Things. Thankfully, I don't care all that much. But um, one thing is, it's really just hard sharing that you're not excited to preach after a break when it's been the only norm that I've ever known. I mean, usually after I take a week out of the pulpit, you guys have seen me, I, I jump out of my shoes and I leave them right there on the platform. I can't wait to get back in the pulpit. I feel like this is what God's designed me to do. I absolutely love it. And then when I realized why I was not excited, it became even harder to share. And like I said, this will tie in to both the service and the passes. So just give me a moment and stick with me and trust me on that. But this is important. But when I first got called in the ministry, it's because I was already spending the majority of my time doing the things that I enjoy doing for Jesus. And people recognized, they saw that, and they asked me if I would do it for a living. And I was blown away by the question, you mean you want me to take my loving Jesus and get paid for it? Like, I get to do this for a living? And I, and I was just so blown away. So my job was literally taking the things I enjoyed most in the world with the people I enjoyed most in the world and telling them about this otherworldly savior that was greater than anything that I've ever encountered in this world. So basically my job was to take everything that I was passionate about and to get paid to tell other people about those things that I was passionate about. And as I surveyed my last year, I realized that I spend most of my time on a day-to-day -day basis doing stuff where um, I enjoy and experience Jesus the least. Um, he's not, it's not the things that I experience Jesus in, folks. And I was able to get by for quite a bit doing that and not really notice because I love the people that I'm doing it for. I love the people that I get to do it with. I love the church that I get to serve at. I love the elders that I get to serve alongside of. And I love the congregation here. But even as I got off vacation, I realized, man, I'm, I'm still tired and feeling kind of burnt out. And I don't have anything pressing on my heart to share. And that made me really scared. And I started journaling about it. And the thing that scared me the most is that I've been spending the vast majority of my time doing stuff that is the least life-giving 
for me and that I yield the least pleasure from, and I've been doing it for a really unhealthy time, and I'll bet you that there's people that can resonate with that out there. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time structuring the church, trying to get the church to where it's healthy for the long term so that we would have something that doesn't just spring up for a season but for multi-generations. At times, I've probably done this to an idolatrous level. I wanted to read something to you on the day that I planted the church. This was from Isaiah 66. It says, Thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would ever build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand is made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. And I wrote in my Bible a prayer that day, O oh God, let me be a man who walks in gospel-saturated humility and who trembles at your word all the days of my life. Forgive me for trying to build a house for you and for your namesake through my efforts so often. Help me to be a man who takes this Bible that I hold in my hand and trembles at your word before I would ever suppose to open my mouth and teach it. And then I wrote a question to come back and ask myself often, am I more passionate about building a house for God or about the God who fills the house? And then to add to that, in the first year of ministry, you just take a lot of shots from people. I mean... Honestly, there's people that hated the way that I do things. You're probably, there's, I'm sure, some of you out there that still hate the way that we've changed things. And you read the stats. Pastors make it through mergers. Uh, the stat that I've read is about 10% make them make it one year, to the one-year anniversary past the first service that they came together. I read a lot of stats. Some were higher than that, some were lower, but that was about the average, 90% end up leaving ministry or leaving the church by the one-year anniversary of their first service. And all of those things take their toll, but none of those things take their toll as much as just spending the majority of my time doing stuff that does not feed my soul or give me life or help me feel the nearness of my Savior. So you start to ask the next big questions, and here we'll, we'll get into where it's more relevant to each of you. Hopefully, I might even have these up behind me sometimes that just magically appears like that. Um, I don't know how it works. It's like Tesla or something. But I started to ask myself these questions like, what are the things that get me really excited? If I was to invest my time in just my passions, what would that look like? What would those passions even be if I was to start to write down a list of those passions. What would it look like to start to say no to anything and everything that does not fit within those passions that God has given me to hold on to? What did it look like when I really experienced the Lord the most in my passions? What were the most tangible experiences that I had with Jesus when I was walking in those passions? What did it look like when I felt like I was just unequivocally at the center of his will, felt 
his pleasure in ways that were tangible and experienced the sheer joy of knowing that he has you exactly where he wants you. Anybody know that joy that I'm talking about? We were like, there's no place I'd rather be than right here in the very presence of my Savior because I'm exactly where he wants me at this moment, doing exactly what he's called and made me to do. So the four big answers that I was given... And maybe your answers might be different. I would challenge you. Write these down. These are questions to ask yourself. The first was seeing those who had never considered religion starting to get saved by Jesus. And that's what this passage is all about that we're going to look at this morning. The second was seeing the next generation come to know Jesus so that we're not some church sitting around talking about the glory days, singing Bruce Springsteen songs, talking about, hey, remember the last time that we had a young person walking through this church? And then you see a 35-year-old walk in and you attack him because you think that that's a youth because your church has gotten so crusty. Um, and I don't want to be that, that, that church. Um, number three was church planting and being crazy enough Listen to this. I'm crazy enough to believe that God's going to use this place to plant churches that will plant churches that will eventually reach the entire Jersey Shore with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to die for that cause. I want to give my, John Knox said back in the 1500s, he said, give me Scotland or I die. And I go to the Jersey Shore all the time and sit on the beach and just look out over each of those towns and pray over it and say, God, give me the shore or I die. I'd rather die than just play church. I want to see you do something unique in my generation. And the last one was telling anyone who will listen, I don't care if I have to speak to a lamppost about the free and radical and scandalous grace of God. And the staleness that I was feeling in my spirit is that I was spending a lot of time doing stuff, and a lot of it was good stuff, but very little of it was related to those four things that I just named off to you, the things that just awaken my soul and just awaken me to the person of Jesus and want to make me pursue Jesus in ministry. And what I realized when I went back and looked at my, my schedule is I was giving about three hours of my week to those four things that I was most passionate about. I wasn't even tithing my week to the things that made me want to pursue ministry to begin with. And there are a lot of important areas of ministry other than those four. I those four don't encompass everything a church is supposed to be doing, folks. It's not like I'm saying, if you're not on my list of four, then, you know, get out of here. There, there's so many. Your list might look completely different than mine. And there's nothing special about the number four. But the fact is that most of my time is spent outside of areas where I felt like God made me. Instead, it was spent doing other stuff. And look, I'm just going to say it from the pulpit that I'm just not going to do that anymore. If it doesn't fit those four things that made me passionate about Jesus and that I, I'm called to, the answer is just going to start to be no um, to those things. And, and no is my word for 2017, and I want to use it a lot, but man, I don't want to invest my life into stuff where I don't see my God. It's not worth it. This life is a vapor. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow and it's not like I don't see that those things are important it, it's the opposite it's that they're so incredibly important that praise God he raises up 
people with so many gifts that are far more capable than I am. Listen, in New Jersey, I want to just be just so clear, because we live in an area that is 77% Roman Catholic, the second most Catholic county in the country, we look at the guy that does what I do and we still look at him like he's a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest any more than 1 Peter says that I am, that I'm a priesthood amongst believers, just like every single one of you that bears the name of Christ on your life. But somewhere along the line, people start to get the idea of if something needs to get done, pastor needs to do it. And I would just encourage you, read Ephesians 4, if that's the way that you look at ministry. Ephesians 4 says, praise God that the pastor is usually not the most gifted or equipped person in any given ministry, and that's why he raises up so many other people to be given to those important tasks. So for me to be a good steward of the gifts that God's given me, I need to devote myself to the areas that I am more called and capable than other people. And that's critical why we get rid of the the pastor has to do it mentality. And it also just shows that the gospel going, or this passage, rather, excuse me, I got ahead of myself, is a great place to step back and just share the heart condition that I just wanted to share with you, because it's all about the power of the gospel and reaching the unchurched folks who are the least likely to be the followers of Jesus, and this group that we see here in Acts 15, they become some of the first followers of Jesus, and let me tell you, that fires me up more than anything. When you start to think about those people that we would never think would set foot inside of a church and you start to see them just fired up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It also shows that the gospel is going to a new generation of Christians in this passage, something that we're celebrating today in this service, but something that we need to never, ever, ever take our eye off for a moment and always keep it before us because it becomes evident so quickly. Hear me on this. It becomes evident so quickly whether a church is going to actually care about reaching the lost and care about reaching the next generation or whether they're going to actually be a church that reaches the lost and reaches the next generation. Guess what? In my job and being um, working for a church planning network, I get to go to a lot of churches around the world. And you know what every single one of them say that they care about? Reaching the lost and reaching the next generation. Then you say, okay, when was your last baptism? And they say, well, I think Clinton was president, or one of the Bushes. I always get those two confused. It's like, well, you know what? You're probably not prioritizing reaching the next generation. Let me meet your young people. Um, all right, well, sh- this is her 60th birthday. Um, she's a- that if you say you care for it, and you're not actually prioritizing it, you're just saying that you care for it. And lastly, this passage deals with the stumbling block that still so many people in this area in our culture where we're called to be missionaries struggle to believe and has uniquely equipped us to be able to reach. And that's that people see that the gospel being free and the grace of God just being free and radical is too good to believe. Literally, people believe that. And let me just tell you what we're going to see in this passage is if the gospel that you're preaching is not too good to believe, then you're not even preaching the gospel. If you have not preached the grace of God to the point where you're being pointed at and saying you're preaching lawlessness, you have not yet to preach the depths 
of the grace of God. And no, I'm not preaching lawlessness. And people that believe that the one leads to the other don't understand grace. So they've called this conference together in Acts 15. That's known as the Jerusalem Council. And they begin to discuss exactly that. The three questions they're dealing with in this passage is, God's grace can't be that amazing, can it? What's the catch? So that's the first part of the conference, is trying to deal with what the catch is that's going on. God can't really save those people, can he? What's the catch? Why are they really here? Remember the first time that I went and met David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, if those of you who know him. And that was the same mentality. God can't really go and save that guy. What's his catch? Is he trying to get paroled? And I found out he has like 280 consecutive life sentences. So there was no catch. It was just that the guy loved Jesus, and that's what they're dealing with right here. And the last question is, how is God going to do something amazing and unheard of in the next generation? There must be some kind of gimmick going in on here. And that's what this passage is all about. That's why they called this conference to grapple with these very real struggles, and they landed on the matchless grace of God. So the passage begins with some people showing up and preaching this gospel of Jesus plus. Look at verse 1. It says, And some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, meaning they're trying to teach this new group of Christians, Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So in this case, when I talk about Jesus plus, it's Jesus plus the law. They're pointing back to God's covenant with Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And what they're saying is, you need to receive the sign of the covenant in order to become the children of Abraham. And you need to become children of Abraham. You need to become Jewish is what they're saying, in order to become children of promise, and you need to become children of that promise to become a child of God. So first, go and perform this spiritual ritual, and then after you go and perform this ritual, then you can give your heart to Jesus. That's what they're preaching in verse 1. But you must be made like us religiously before you can be made family with us and be brothers and sisters in Christ. And they just seem to miss all of those wonderful verses like circumcision is a circumcision of the heart it's the dead tried up crust that covers your heart that needs to be cut away and that can only be done by Jesus it's not some outward act that needs to be done the outward act without an inward change does not get you anywhere. That's why I don't baptize babies because a wet baby without a profession of faith in Jesus is just a wet baby. And that's the same thing that you see. Sorry, Presbyterian friends. Um, but <laughs> thank you, Baptist friends. Um, that was the first time I've ever thanked a Baptist and it felt, it felt good. Um, they missed the point of the whole new covenant. God was not telling this group of people to go and get circumcised so that they could have a new heart. God's telling them, your old heart can't be changed. You can't just go in and get a couple valves replaced. You need a full-on heart transplant. That's how sick your heart is. Your heart is dead. So I want to take away your old heart. I want to circumcise it. And I want to give you this heart of flesh because your heart is what I was always after. 
to begin with, and it's always been about an out the heart response, not the outward response. And man, the church has been preaching the message of Jesus plus, or the gospel plus, ever since this moment. I'd like to say that this council stopped it, that it stopped being done at this moment, but we've just found new, creative, insidious ways to do it. Historically, it's always been Jesus plus. It's either been Jesus plus asceticism. Go and give away everything to the, po to the poor and have this poverty gospel and then you could really know Jesus. Or Jesus plus monasticism. Go and tuck yourself away and be this hermit where it's only you and Jesus and you're not living this communal life where you're supposed to experience Jesus in community. Or Jesus plus Romanism. It's your faith plus your ability to be able to keep the laws in front of you that justifies you. And people still do it today, guys. It's not just a historical thing today. It's Jesus plus my righteousness. The way that I stand right before God is I put my faith in Jesus, but man, I better be as good as possible or else Jesus isn't going to see me as a good Christian and I'm going to lose my position in him. It's Jesus plus abstaining from the things that we need to avoid. And man, on Youth Sunday, let me just tell you, that is the biggest way that parents distort the gospel to their children. Yes, it is good to be able to see good behavior in them, but don't use the gospel as your way of creating behavior modification for your children. Because if you ever start to tell your child, look, it's your faith in Jesus, plus you cleaning up your toys and not fighting with your sister and brother, and that's what's going to save you, you are going to confuse that child and they will leave the church the very first chance they are out from underneath your ungospel-like rule. It's still... Jesus plus, or it's Jesus plus prosperity. You have to have this or that to show that Jesus is really blessed you, or Jesus plus my ability to be a good boy or a bad boy. That's one of the things that I try to sit with on my kids' level, and actually, do you ever get down on your kids' level and look at them in the eyes and say, look, what you did was mess up, but here's what the gospel says about your mess up, and this is what repentance looks like, and yeah, I want you to correct that behavior, and I want you to change it, but I want you to repent, because I want you to be a lover of Jesus for the rest. Do you take the time to do that, or do you just shorthand and say, a Christian shouldn't be doing that stuff! Don't you know better? Because guess what? That kid's not going to fall in love with Jesus. That kid's going to run from Jesus the first time he gets a chance. That kid is just going to look at your abusive rule as an extension of Jesus and believe that Jesus is abusive and there is no way that we can misrepresent Jesus anymore. And I love how God deals with it. He calls together this council, which is a combination of testimony and truth of the teaching of God's word. Look at verses 2 through 5. He says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders were asking about this question. So, let me keep going to verse 6. So being on their way to the church, they passed by Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done amongst them. I love verse 
too when it says that no small dispute arose amongst us. All this is is a nice, sanctified way to say that Paul and Barnabas were angry and they fought because they said, you cannot distort the gospel. Look, I know that we live in this culture of ecumenicalism. You believe what you want to believe. You believe what you want to believe. I had a heretic talk to me yesterday and tell me, ah, it doesn't matter, you know, it's all one God anyway. So uh, you could either say yes, or you could blow up that person's spot and say, no, no, it's really not. There's one Jesus, and he's the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way to the Father but through him and they hear that the gospel's being distorted and they're angry about it they don't like that these guys are trying to obscure the gospel that's not okay and look we should be upset when people are trying to distort the gospel i don't know where this garbage came from that when we're standing at the pulpit i can't tell you that joel osteen's a heretic and i can't tell you that if you believe his message it's not a saving gospel i don't know where it came from that i have to be nice to rob bell and that I have to say that read his books because he's preaching some saving gospel. No, he's preaching something that's sending people to hell and he's getting rich in the process of it. Read through the epistles. The apostles called people out like that all the time. I don't know where it came from. We drive by graveyard after graveyard of liberal churches that have abandoned the gospel and just say, ah, we just have to be nice. They're just doing things their way. No, we don't. We pray that God rips that piece of property out of their hand and gives it to somebody that's going to actually use it to preach the gospel. That's what you pray. Or you pray that they're led to repentance and they get in front of their congregation and weep and beg them to forgive them for being an unfaithful shepherd who's lied to them for all of the, these years. And that's what Paul was doing. He's mad. He's saying, how dare you? Who are you to obscure the gospel? And look, we should be mad when people obscure the gospel too. I can't believe in the Reformed camp. It embarrasses me that Reformed people argue with other Reformed people about not being Reformed enough. It's like, if you really want to argue, go on a Saturday over to, you know, don't do that. Bad advice. Um, if you want to argue, there are more people that you could argue with in a sanctified way than you know, I can't believe that um, me and you don't agree on the extent of the limit of the atonement. You're really only a four and a half point Calvinist. You must not be as if you're not as cool as me. If you're a Calvinist, you're not cool. So just get rid of that notion. You're biblically accurate, but you're not cool. So <laughs> that's not who you should be fighting with. So Paul and Barnabas just start sharing about this glorious mess of how messy people are being reached through the gospel, through unconventional means. And let me tell you, if we ever stop having stories about glorious messes, about how the gospel is reaching messy people through unconventional means, pull the plug on this puppy. We're wasting your tithe dollars, we're keeping electricity going that should not be going, and we're wasting real estate that could be another part. We have to be able to stand up here and tell the story of God is reaching down and grabbing rank-and-file sinners by the back of the neck and saving them, and he's continually doing it, and we're continuing to see that in our churches. Amen? And guess what? It's funny. Whenever you see something cool happen, the religious people are offended. We're going to get into that in a minute. But just like if we started to reach people the way that they need to be reached and we were willing to go to unconventional means in order to do it, 
rich people are going to, or the uh, religious people are going to be offended as well. Look, I, I want to be like Jesus. And I pray that that's the cry of your heart, to want to be like Jesus. I want to be a friend of sinners a lot more than I want to capitulate to religious people. I don't want to have a church that's a friend to the religious and that get in the way of being friends to sinners and preaching the gospel to them. I heard a mentor, a guy that I, I once respected very much, say that the church, why is it that the church repels the people that Jesus attracted and attracts the people that Jesus repelled? Let me ask you that. Why is it that the church repels the people that Jesus attracted and attracted the people that Jesus repelled? I want to see a church that can preach grace and not have but at the end of it. I remember this one time I was preaching on just the pure grace of God out of Romans chapter 6 about how we are new in our union in Christ and we are just this new creation. And the guy that was moderating, moderating it felt the need to come up and say, but... Don't forget, this is a great message, but let us not continue in sin so that grace, you know, don't use it as a license. And I couldn't help but sit and think, why are you so uncomfortable with grace that you felt the need to correct my very biblical message that I just gave? Sometimes it's okay just to talk about grace. Should we live a holy life? Absolutely. And that's even added on to like 14 verses in this passage, but sometimes the Bible just talks about grace and it's okay if we do the same thing. If you go to a church that preaches grace but leave the church, that's, they're not even doing the gospel right if it's grace but. So some people aren't buying into this grace thing. Look with me at verse 5. It says, but some believers belong to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. <laughs> I imagine that's how they said it. They're basically saying this grace thing is just too good. What if you keep preaching on this grace thing and the whole system falls apart? And I still hear that nonsense today. How can you preach the grace of God too hard? You were dead. Because you rebelled against the holy God who created you and could have wiped you off the face of the earth. And while you were dead, he decided to hatch a plan to murder his own son to be able to reconcile you and bring you back into eternal relationship with him. Even though he knew that after I'd receive him, I would continue to mess up daily and that even my repentance would need repenting of. And he still chose me and still saved me. How can you preach grace too much? We have not yet begun to plummet the limits of grace. How could you ever preach grace too hard? We've never begun to hit on the scandalous roots of grace. And this is why I list telling people about the radical, unbelievable grace of God as my number one favorite thing to do in ministry because grace still is our calling card, guys. It doesn't matter what program you offer. It doesn't matter how nice you're building is it doesn't matter any grace is the calling card of the church of jesus christ most of the stuff that we do the world can do better what the world cannot do is offer grace because the world does not have jesus grace must be our calling card so paul and barnabas basically destroy them with this grace explosion and hit them with these two arguments and i'll preach through these quickly it says the apostles 
and the elders gathered together and considered this matter. And after there was much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and by my mouth that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, listen to this question. Tell me if this shouldn't just pierce your heart. If you have a heart beating in your chest, then you are the person arguing for grace plus. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved to the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that had been done amongst the Gentiles. And as they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God has visited the Gentiles to take from a people for his name. And the words of the prophet agree, just as it's written, And this I will turn, and I will rebuild the tent of David, just as it has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, and the remnant of mankind will seek the Lord, and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes all these things known of old. So these two arguments he gives in his grace explosion that I'm basically going to wrap up this passage with. The first is, whether they want to admit it or not, God appeared to this new generation before they had ever done or known anything about the law. And that's what they're struggling with. They're like, hey, we have to do the whole law stuff. And then God appeared to us. These guys, they were just out sinning and partying. And now they know Jesus the same way. That's not fair. Where do we go and get to do our sinning and partying? And why do they just have no conditions? And all the, everything's, the fetters are taken off. They just get to know Jesus. Yep. That's how awesome the grace of God is. Whether you grew up religious and you were just Mother Teresa straight out the womb, or whether you were a demon spawn like I was, um, it's the same gospel that saves you. It's the same gospel that grabbed a hold of you in the same way. And guess what? Your religion was just as stenchly foul to God as my licentiousness was. And he's still grabbing a hold of non-religious people ever since. I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody that wasn't looking for Jesus just get broken down in the middle of it. I see a buddy over there can still remember walking down the boardwalk with you and you telling me all of these silly things you needed to do to get your life right with God. And I just said, would you just shut up and believe in Jesus? And now that man is a transformed brother in Christ, worshiping with us. Today. And the second part of the, Paul's argument where he really blew them up is, hey, okay, so you're saying that they had to do the whole law thing to come to Christ. How'd that whole law thing work out for you again? Oh, you got exiled. A- and then you came back. Oh, and then you got exiled again. And then you came back. Oh, and then you got destroyed again. And then, and then you came back. And then you cut down all the high places so you wouldn't have a place to go and, and worship idols anymore. But then you grew them back so that you could go and worship your idols in the very same places. He basically says you couldn't find God through the law any easier than fighting your way out of a wet paper bag. So why are you trying to expect that they're going to find God through the law? Who the heck are you to judge when your lawfulness stunk just as bad 
as their lawlessness. So they come up with some conclusions at the end of the conference. They say, therefore, our judgment is not to trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted from idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, from blood, and from ancient generations of Moses, from city to city, but are proclaimed in the synagogues. I'm going to get into some of those details next week because I thought they might be a little troublesome for a youth service. But basically the three conclusions he comes up with is don't trouble them from coming to Christ. Just keep it about Jesus. Number two, don't place unnecessary rules about them before they come to Christ. Keep it about Jesus. And number three, let them know that yes, they do need to step away from their pagan life if they truly come to Christ. Continue to keep it about Jesus. Don't be like, all right, now you came to know Jesus. Now here, here's the legalistic life that you need to live in order to continue to keep it still about Jesus. Unfortunately, people usually place number three before number one in that progression, and it causes a lot of confusion, particularly to the next generation. People tell young ones, abstain, abstain from pagan culture. You know, don't go and do all the partying and stuff that your friends are doing in high school. Don't drink and do drugs like those kids who are having fun. Don't go and do all of this stuff, and even though it looks like they're enjoying themselves and they're the popular kids, and they tell them to abstain from this pagan culture, even though they've never helped them to understand why by rooting them in the amazing, radical grace of Jesus, and that the grace of Jesus is far superior than anything that they could have pursued to begin with. Think about it like this. Think about if they were to just show up and tell them to abstain from all these things, and then we tell them about Jesus, if that's the way the conference went. It was like, okay, stay away from the idols, stay away from doing this, stay away from doing that. Oh, and the reason is there's this guy, Jesus, that died 2,000 years ago. And, and, and that's really going to be a lot more fun than the stuff that your friends are saying is fun. They'd be confused, right? It's my belief that the biggest reason why young people are leaving the church is exactly this. Too many people think that the way that you attract the next generation is by making the gospel look cool or make the gospel somehow seem more relevant. Take a close look at this passage. They looked they reached an entire generation of people that were not Christians and made them Christians, and it wasn't by watering down the gospel. The next generation doesn't see a, need to see us make the gospel cool. They need to see us get the gospel right. Everybody leave here with that statement. The next generation doesn't need to see us make the gospel look cool. They need to hear us get the gospel right. Right. They need to know when they're young and teachable that they're created in the image of God and that's why they're created to be eternal worshipers. They don't need to hear this gospel of good Christian kids keep good, clean Christian bedrooms. Not that I wouldn't mind my kids cleaning their room more, but just don't add a butt to the grace of God. When they're hitting adolescence and starting to have tough questions and not understanding the changes that are going on, they need to know why the gospel is enough. And they need to be able to know why Jesus is greater than that thing that they hate about themselves and why they're really beautiful in Christ and why Jesus sees them as infinitely precious and not the thing that they see when they look in the mirror or the things that people tell them that they are when they walk down the hallways of the schools. That's what they need to hear. 
They need to understand this is who Jesus really sees you as, and this is real. This is more real than the kid who's saying terrible things about your body image that you see in school. This is more real than the stuff that you tell yourself alone at night. This is reality. When 20-somethings start to get a job and start to have kids, they need to know that the gospel compels them to raise their children in the gospel, not just that their kids could use a little bit of church so that they could grow up and be good kids. And parents need to believe why the gospel is greater than the American dream if they're ever going to have a prayer of raising kids that believe it. And you can't just devote your whole life to the American dream and then tell your kid, oh, but Jesus is so much better than everything except for the expensive toys that I live my life for. We need to believe that the greatest way that we can change our community is seeing gospel preaching, gospel loving, Jesus-centered, outward focused, gospel-centered churches, not slick programs that we can offer the next generation that couldn't care about your slick programs no matter how much you paid them. And people need to know that Jesus loves them, not a future changed version of them. That's what this whole conference is about. And they're tired of hearing it backwards. They're tired of this gospel of be lovely so that you might be loved. The gospel is you are not lovely, but Christ loved you anyway, and Christ sees you as infinitely lovely. That's the gospel, and they need to know about the marvelous grace of God. So although these were simple conclusions, they hit me hard. The three conclusions from the passage is their wisdom and their solution is to step back and not to devote their time spending it on stuff that doesn't matter for the eternal sake of the kingdom. The second was recalibrating ourselves and making sure that our walk exudes the radical grace of God and that we are just collectively a group of grace junkies instead of a religious collective. And number three is being propelled for mission by joy and the messiness of the next generation coming to Jesus being something that absolutely just ignites our passions. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the beauty and purity of the gospel. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. In Jesus' name, amen.